today I am going to tell you the story of Moody Cow and how he meditates. <laughs> it starts out one morning when Peter the cow wakes up with a horrible dream. I mean, this was a three-eyed alien that tried to eat him. Oh, and he wanted to find his mom and tell him how bad it was, but he couldn't find her anywhere. Instead, you know what he found? He found his sister Daisy the cow coloring with a marker on his brand new skateboard. Oh, he was pretty mad, so he pulled her tail and said, Daisy, knock that off. Well, Daisy thought that was unfair, so she tripped him and he fell down the stairs. Oh, now he is really, really mad. He is so mad that on purpose he goes and cuts the hair off of her doll. Well, of course, he got in trouble for that because Daisy told on him. And then he got in so much trouble, he missed the school bus. And he had to ride his bicycle all the way to school in the snow. He made it through school, but on his way home, he started reliving that moment. He thought, oh, I hate that Daisy cow. She made me miss the school bus. And he was so mad about all of the three-eyed alien dream and Daisy the cow that he slipped on some snow and he fell down and he scraped his knee and now he had blood everywhere. Oh my gosh, he's just recounting it again. That three-eyed alien, Daisy, now I've got a skinned up knee and he's so mad and he turns into his driveway. His dad's truck's there and he hits that and he smashes his little nose on his dad's truck. So now, oh my gosh, he is just Oh, think about it. The three-eyed alien, Daisy tripping him, missing the bus. Now he's got his skin knees and a broken nose. He's so upset, he bends down and he picks up a baseball. And he hurls it at the window of the house and broke it. Well, <clears throat> his mom saw the whole thing. She comes running out and says, Peter, what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? She took one look at his very sad, kind of moody cow face, and she said, oh, Peter, are you a moody cow today? Well, Daisy heard it, and she started saying, moody cow, moody cow, Peter is a moody cow. Oh, well. And then mom said, I think we have to call grandfather. So grandfather came at the phone call, and pretty soon Peter walks into the sunroom and sees grandpa sitting there on the meditation cushion. And he said, hi, Peter. Here the kids are calling you moody cow today. Well, <clears throat> Peter said, yeah. And he said, had a pretty bad day, did you, Peter? He said, yes, I had a very bad day. It was a moody cow kind of day. <laughs> So the grandfather said, tell you what we're going to do. This jar represents your mind. And this jar is all your angry thoughts. And Peter said, oh, that is a jar of water, grandfather. And that is Daisy's glitter. Now, grandfather said, work with me here, Peter. Just work with me. <laughs> so he said, I want you to tell me about your day and we'll put a pinch of glitter in for every angry thought, and we'll just see what happens. Peter was sure it wouldn't work. So, Grandfather said, okay, what's the first thing that happened? And Peter said, I woke up, 
and there was a three-eyed alien trying to eat me. Grandfather said, oh, that's bad. And then I have to do the toilets. I have to clean them for a month because I broke the window. Well, and grandfather said, whew, I think you better put in two pinches for that. And then Daisy, she was coloring on my brand new skateboard. And grandfather said, oh, she did that? And I missed the bus because I got in trouble for, you know, for her doll hair. And I missed the bus and, and I skinned my knee. And he said, oh, boy, I think you better put in one for that. Anything else? Yeah, I hurt my nose. Okay. Okay, so now here's what we're going to do, Peter, said grandfather. We're going to shake this up. Watch those angry thoughts. Here's your brain, and those angry thoughts are swirling around in your brain. And we're going to watch this and watch it until all of your angry thoughts settle to the bottom. So Peter sat there and he watched it. And he watched it, and he breathed in, and he breathed out. And pretty soon, all he could hear was his breath and his heartbeat and he started to calm down. And then Grandpa said, I am going to ring the dong. Here's the important part. Don't move until it stops ringing. Well, how do you feel, Peter? Grandfather asked. Peter said, oh, I feel so much better. I mean, I think I could make myself mad again if I tried. <laughs> Grandfather said, hey, let's not do that. We worked pretty hard to settle those thoughts down. Peter said, that's a really cool thing, but I think I'm still going to be moody cow. It's kind of a cool name. And Grandpa said, good idea. And then Peter said, can I have the mind jar? Grandpa said, sure. Peter said, do you think we could do this again, Grandpa? He said, yeah, why don't we do it a little bit every day? That's the end of the story. Our reading is by Ginny Z in an essay called Restoration in the Attention Economy. I'm no spendthrift, yet I give away my most valued resource freely and with astonishing ease. The squandering begins even before I rise from bed, squinting as I do in the half-dark, my face warmed by the dim lantern of my phone screen. Throughout the day, I drain the reservoir in small, frequent bursts, on the subway commute, during meals, as a diversion from work, all the way until the release offered by sleep. And draining it is. This kind of scattershot spending empties you. The resource I'm referring to is my attention. The word attention stems from the Latin ad tendere, meaning to stretch toward. Our attention determines the direction toward which we stretch our minds. Yet all too often, exercising our attentional power feels less like intentional movement towards some select object of contemplation 
and more like the passive bracing for an onslaught of sensory input and competing stimuli. Since the 2016 election, my attention has grown reliably more skittish. The ceaseless news cycle, the fire hose of tweets from a certain figure in the White House, and the collective panic boiling over on social media impinges on more and more of my mental landscape. With my attention tugged about at such speeds, I find it nearly impossible to reflect or to rise above the conditioned mind. Scrolling past headlines, clickbait, status updates, and online ads, I'm reduced to merely a reactive being, a tangle of nerve endings. In any minute, my mood can shift rapidly from rage to amusement to despair, synced as it is with what appears in my sightline. The essay continues, in the wake of the election, one of the first books that exerted its gravitational pull on me was C.D. Wright's poetry collection, Shall Cross. It was published by the Copper Canyon Press in 2016. A few months after, Wright herself had died unexpectedly at the age of 67. One afternoon, feeling abraded by an ambush of Trump-related headlines, I set down my laptop and I cracked open Shall Cross. Now who will make the record of us? Who will be the author of our blind and bilious hours? Of our silken ear of our years, who will distinguish our dandruff from the rest among the gust of history? These lines from the title poem greeted me, quietly sublime. My mind swung open, each line slid into view, serrated but with heft. The utterances bearing Wright's trademark sensory richness continued to unfold on the page, some vatic and invoking the absolute, others rooted in the material world through fugitive pieces of memory. The scale of human life, the poem suggests, is but a bit of dandruff set against cosmic time. As I lapped up each fragment, I could sense some eternal rhythm getting recalibrated. Time, which a few minutes ago felt excruciatingly compressed, broadened. On a recent day, I woke up to my cell phone alarm and grabbed the phone to turn it off, also bringing the screen into view and seeing a weather alert, a breaking news alert, the fact that I had received four emails and two text messages while I was asleep. The day continued in much the same way, with the news playing on the smart speakers in the kitchen while I made coffee and packed lunches then more news on the TV while I worked out, then more news in the car as I drove the kids to school, then a day at work with many, many emails, but also phone calls, text messages, Facebook messenger messages, Facebook updates, tweets, calendar reminders, to-do lists, not to mention the face-to-face -face interactions and meetings. 
After work, I may have listened to more news on the drive to pick up my kids and go home. And then there was catching up on their day and hearing their news, and then on my husband's news, and then an evening full of more email and social media until I fell asleep. <sighs> what I'm describing is not unusual or extreme. Many people live lives just as or more connected and plugged in as I do. And many of us feel overwhelmed. In her book, The Age of Overwhelm, trauma expert Laura Vandernoot Lipsky identifies many causes of overwhelm, some internal and some external. Our own genetics and epigenetics, or how our genes are being expressed because of what has happened to us or even to our parents or grandparents, is part of the picture. Intergenerational oppression and trauma, systematic oppression, and internalized oppression can all be contributing factors to a person's experience of overwhelm. Health concerns, including for many people a chronic lack of sleep and access to good food, also add to the overwhelm. Then there are family and community commitments and the workload and stressors of school and or paid employment that make their contributions to our overwhelm as well. And finally, many of us are stressed with economic concerns and worries, world events and the 24-7 news cycle, and the climate crisis. It's worth thinking for a minute about what we are actually doing when we pay attention. How we are using what Jenny Z called her most valued resource in today's reading. After all, our brains are bombarded with information every moment of every day. Every complex organism is receiving information from eyes and ears across spectrums of visible and audible wavelengths, as well as from skin and other innervated parts, sending messages of cold or pain or just sore feet. Our senses transmit an estimated 11 million bits of information to our brains every second. It's pretty amazing. And how can we really be paying attention to it all? The answer is we aren't and we don't. <laughs> we have the, albeit limited at times, capacity to choose, to ignore, and to focus. Tim Wu, in his book, The Attention Merchants, puts it this way. We ignore so much stuff for a simple reason. If we didn't, we'd quickly be overwhelmed. Our brains flooded until they seized up. Depending on the kind of information, it takes our brains some amount of time to process it. And when we are presented with too much at once, we begin to panic, like a waiter who has too many orders shouted at him at once. But our capacity to ignore is limited by another fact we're always paying attention to something. If we think of attention as a resource, or even a kind of currency, we must allow that it is always necessarily being spent. There is no saving it for later. The question is always, what shall I pay attention to? Our brains answer this question with varying degrees of volition, from, shh, I'm reading this, 
to letting our minds wander in the direction of whatever might draw it in, whether in the corner of the screen or along some road that we are walking. Wu's excellent book goes on to tell the story of how that wandering attention has been harvested for profit since at least the mid-1800s and the dawn of the advertising industry, a process which has reached ever greater effectiveness as new technologies have increased the access others have to our attention. Each of these increases in access have happened as part of a bargain of sorts as consumers receive some convenience or benefit in exchange for becoming the product themselves and having their attention sold. But cumulatively, the effect has been to make us more and more distracted and ultimately overwhelmed. At the same time that we are overwhelmed by constant pulls on our attention, however, we seem to be doing an amazing job at ignoring big things such as the climate crisis. Many people tell me that when they bring up their concerns, fears, or grief about the state of the world, they are shut down by others because that's just too depressing to dwell on. These feelings can also be treated like they are the problem rather than a normal reaction to the reality that we are faced with. In the book, Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy, by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnston, the authors write, quote, pain for the world, a phrase that covers a range of feelings, including outrage, alarm, grief, guilt, dread, and despair, is a normal, healthy response to a world in trauma. In Buddhism, as in other major world religions, open alertness that allows our hearts to be stirred by the suffering of others is appreciated as a strength. Indeed, in every spiritual tradition, compassion, which literally means to suffer with, is prized as an essential and noble capacity. This ability is evidence of our interconnectedness with all life." End quote. The authors go on to point out that systems theory gives us the concept of negative feedback loops and how necessary they are to our survival. When we are off course, say we're not dressed for the weather, we receive feedback, in this case we're uncomfortable, and then we react to that feedback with a course correction that brings us back. They write, quote, how would we notice if we were straying off course as a society? We would start to feel uncomfortable. If we were heading in a dangerous direction, we might feel alarmed. If something unacceptable was taking place, we might feel outrage. If parts of our world that we loved were dying, we would expect to grieve. These feelings are normal, healthy responses. They help us notice what's going on. They are also what rouses us to action." End quote. It's not that the feelings are there that is the problem. But then what are we going to do with these feelings? 
Laura Vandernoot Lipsky writes that we must develop our capacity to metabolize what we are exposed to in life. Just as our body metabolizes and makes use of what we eat and then processes and discards what we cannot use or what would make us sick. Quote, it's important to manage our exposure levels, whether in our control or not, along with our reactions to it our ability to metabolize, integrate, and make meaning of it. This can be the proverbial razor's edge, dancing the sharp line created by what we are facing externally, our internal capacity to process it, and our resulting speech, conduct, and action. But here's what I know for certain. When we don't fully metabolize that which may accumulate within us, it tends to linger and fester and then manifest, sometimes horribly." End quote. Last year, I went through a fairly bad bout of burnout. I felt a bit like an empty bird bath, vainly trying to nourish others while I myself was just dried up. During that time, a congregant told me that Laura Vandernoot Lipsky, an author I admired, was giving a workshop for people in the helping professions all about vicarious trauma exposure and how to care for ourselves in the midst of it all. I drove for hours to attend and was inspired and buoyed up by so much of what she said, but one thing in particular has really stuck with me. During the final Q&A, someone asked her, but there's so much need in the world and I'm doing my best to meet that. How can I possibly take time away from that to take care of myself? Her reply was, we are all part of a web of existence. You are part of that web. You cannot do good in one part of the web while causing harm to your own place in it by harming yourself or those closest to you who are affected by your unhealthy coping mechanisms. Because harming your little corner of the web harms the whole web. Those were words I needed to hear. You cannot do good in the world if you are doing so at the cost of your own health and or taking it out on those nearest and dearest to you. Because you and your loved ones are also part of the world. We need to aim for a net gain, not an unhealthy sacrifice. Many of the practices that sustain us and expand our inner capacity to deal with what we are exposed to likely won't surprise you. Really, as Laura Vandernoot Lipsky also said at that workshop, most of us know how to handle our business. We just don't, for whatever reason. So because it doesn't hurt to keep on reminding one another, I'm going to remind you. Drink enough water. <laughs> Get enough sleep. Exercise. Put yourself into nature and go outside. Consider lowering your exposure to the news and to media. Hey, eat healthy foods. Check in on your possible addictions, whether they are to food, caffeine, alcohol, work, whatever. Embrace humor and joy. Laugh and dance and sing. Remind yourself of your original intentions. Renew your commitments if appropriate. 
Take time to appreciate art and beauty. Practice stillness, mindfulness, and meditation. Put yourself in the hands of healers. Structure your life to conserve willpower and limit decision fatigue. And talk to someone. Ask for and be willing to receive help. Okay, I doubt I surprised you with that list of advice. If I did, then yay, a new idea for you to try. If I didn't, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, yeah, I know all that, but you know, I'm just not gonna do it all. Ask yourself, why? Why wouldn't you do that for yourself? Would you do all of that for someone you loved? Would you do all of that for a child that was in your care? Why wouldn't you do it for yourself? What is stopping you? Whose voices are you hearing? Where and when did you internalize the idea that you shouldn't care for yourself? What barriers are you pushing up against? I know whose voice in my head most often stops me, and I know what I internalize. And yet, even knowing that doesn't stop it from having power over me. So give yourself some grace if you are still trying and struggling and failing. Even when we pay attention to ourselves, we sometimes are still overwhelmed. Or sometimes, like Moody Cow in today's story, we're just in the grip of big feelings, as we'd say to a child. And we need to learn some techniques for finding our calm, still center. We could all use a jar of glitter sometimes, or a journal, or prayer beads, or a mindfulness app on your cell phone. Or maybe it just feels like the little irritations and tasks are getting in your way. A congregant told me a story about their garden that has stuck with me. They set up a walking labyrinth with plantings, which sounded lovely to me, but in a twist that I find very relatable. They found that when they walked the labyrinth, they were always seeing the weeds that needed pulling <laughs> and couldn't relax into the meditation. In the end, they gave up on the garden labyrinth and are very happy with a small one painted on a patio. <laughs> Maybe we can't pull our attention away from the weeds. The minutiae just drags at us. It might be a great idea to restructure and limit our exposure and responsibility for it all. Sometimes stepping away, temporarily or permanently, is the right choice so you can give attention to what truly matters. And please, please, seek out help if you need it. We cannot just will ourselves out of or white knuckle it through every mental health struggle. I have received help from therapists, psychiatrists, and medical doctors over the years. And while I still feel some social stigma in standing here and telling you all that, I am glad that I got the help when I needed it. Let's do our part to normalize care. No one can do it all alone. We need each other, and the world needs us. There is pain and discomfort and grief in the world, that can be a course correction if we pay attention. 
Joanna Macy has developed a spiral approach to facing these difficult things with four stages in it. It's a spiral because it's never truly done. You just keep redoing this work. The four stages are grounding in gratitude, feeling the pain, changing your perspective, and going forth. Starting with gratitude may seem difficult when we are faced with pain or difficulty. And yet, being grounded in gratitude has been shown to lead to greater compassion and altruism and is generally correlated with being happier. As the choir sang today, even though we all can still do more, there's so much to be thankful for. There is always something to be grateful for. And when we ground ourselves in that sense of gratitude, we draw from deeper roots. Scan your recent memories and identify something that happened that you're pleased about. It doesn't have to be anything big, just something that you can say, I'm glad that happened. Now, recall what it felt like. Savor that moment. Then, who or what helped that moment happen? Think of them and send them your thanks. The next stage of the spiral is to feel the pain. We honor our pain. We often try to avoid pain and negative emotions, but that's not effective. As we did in our meditation today, we allow the pain of the world to pass through our hearts, ripening and becoming fertile compost. As Joanna Macy wrote, each day we lose valuable parts of our biosphere as species become extinct and ecosystems destroyed. Yet where is their funeral service? If our world is dying piece by piece without our publicly and collectively expressing our grief, we might easily assume that these losses aren't important. Honoring our pain for the world is a way of valuing our awareness. Then we come to changing perspectives, also known as seeing with new eyes or reframing. Here, you would expand your sense of self, recognize that you're part of an interdependent web of life, expand your definition of family or community, take a longer view of the arc of history, ask yourself new questions. And finally, but not really finally, because this spiral just goes round and round, we come to going forth. Grounded in gratitude, honoring our own pain, and seeing a new perspective, we now go forth to act. Whether we are called to teach, build, heal, protect, or any other action in the world, we make an impact beyond ourselves. How are you called to go forth now? What actions will you take in the coming weeks? Take a breath with me. Breathe in gratitude. Breathe out pain. Breathe in wisdom. Breathe out action.
breathe in attention, breathe out overwhelm. Breathe in love, breathe out peace. May it be so, blessed be.